The scripture this morning I will be reading is from Genesis chapter 11 through chapter 12, chapter 11, verse 10, through chapter 12, verse 9. These are the generations of Shem. When Shem was 100 years old, he fathered Arpachshad two years after the flood. And Shem lived after he fathered Arpachshad 500 years and had other sons and daughters. When Arpachshad had lived 35 years, he fathered Shelah. And Arpachshad lived after he fathered Shelah 403 years and had other sons and daughters. When Shelah had lived 30 years, he fathered Eber. And Shelah lived after he fathered Eber 403 years and had other sons and daughters. When Eber had lived 34 years, he fathered Peleg. And Eber lived after he fathered Peleg 430 years and had other sons and daughters. When Peleg had lived 30 years, he fathered Ru. And Peleg lived after he fathered Ru 209 years and had other sons and daughters. When Ru had lived 32 years, he fathered Sarag. And Ru lived after he fathered Sarag 207 years and had other sons and daughters. When Sarag had lived 30 years, he fathered Nahor. And Sarag lived after he fathered Nahor 200 years and had other sons and daughters. When Nahor had lived 29 years, he fathered Terah. And Nahor lived after he fathered Terah 119 years and had other sons and daughters. When Terah had lived 70 years, he fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Now these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his kindred in Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife, Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Iscah. Now Sarai was barren. She had no child. Terah took Abram his son, and Lot the son of Haran his grandson, and Sarai his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife, and they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you 
and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Moray. At the time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going toward the Negeb. This ends the reading of God's word. you didn't quite get there in time in your Bible, if you brought one, make sure it's open to Genesis chapter 11. By the way, Eliza, are you in here? Welcome back, Eliza. It's great to have you. She's been studying abroad. Can I say welcome home? Do we get to keep you for a little while longer? Uh, it brings me great joy as the Lord equips young people in this place and then sends them out and then they come back. And you get to see what he's doing. Heavenly Father, I pray right now that you would bless this preaching of your word. Lord, I ask that you would take words that to some of us are very familiar and you would open our eyes to see what you are saying and doing. Help us, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Hebrews 11.6 says this, church. And without faith, it is impossible to please God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. I think faith is one of those religious words that is really easy to use, but not so easy to understand. Okay, we could make a whole long list. Fellowship, faith, evangelism, all kinds of words. And I think in American culture, Faith has become this, this catchphrase 
for anything spiritual. So, for example, a survey might ask whether you're a person of faith, right? Uh, the theater community in RVA might may come together and put on an acts of faith festival. You may hear politicians talk about faith-based initiatives. And I noticed that VCU is offering this fall a class on the life sciences and faith. And all kinds of people, if you're walking around in Carytown and you just go up to them and say, hey, is, is faith an important part of your life? All kinds of people would say, oh yeah, it's an important part of my life. And, and, and if we turn our attention to the church, you know, what do we find? Well, we sing songs about faith. We read scriptures about faith. We read and pray for faith. We hear sermons about faith. But, but I think we can do all those things, folks, and, and not have a blessed clue. What do we actually mean by faith? What do we mean by that? And that's one of the reasons that, that the story of Abram in the book of Genesis is, is such a gift to us. Because it teaches us, it shows us exactly what biblical faith is and what biblical faith does. Now, you won't find a one-sentence definition of faith in here. Why not? Because Genesis isn't a dictionary. It's a story, a true story, but it's a story with a message, it's a story, if you would, with, with an, a divinely intended effect. And it, and it teaches us when it comes to faith that biblical faith is this. It's a relationship with God characterized by obedient trust. Well, what is faith according to the Bible, according to Genesis 11 and 12? It's a relationship with God marked by, characterized by, obedient trust. When obedient trust in God is present, faith is present. And if obedient trust in God is absent, faith is absent. It's a relationship with God characterized by obedient trust. And I would argue that there are few topics I could preach about or we could read about in scripture that are more important than faith. And the reason for that is simple. It's that the blessing of God only rests on those who respond to his word of promise with faith. If you don't respond to God's word of promise with faith, the blessing of God does not rest upon you. That's, that's a big deal. I mean, we, we tend to think of God as what? He's some sort of mystical being out there who's, who's nice to everyone and blesses everyone and is trying to bless everyone unless you're some kind of really bad person like Hitler or Stalin. Because there's only a handful of those people. I mean, granted, none of us are, would hopefully claim to be Mother Teresa maybe, but... But you know, if, if you're a decent person, surely God will bless you. That's how we think. And yet, the consistent refrain of, of all the previous chapters in the book of Genesis, right up to when we get to chapter 11, is, that, is this. There are no good people who have a right to the blessing of God. We're all sinners. We're all disobedient. We, we've all broken God's law. We haven't just failed to merit his blessing. We deserve his judgment. And, and the entire structure of the, the first 11 chapters of this book makes that point. So, so what do we have? Well, we have Genesis, quick review, it organized into 10 sections or books. And, and each one begins with this phrase. These are the generations of so-and-so. 
These are the generations of so-and-so. And, and that pr- then we pr- they proceed to tell us what became of so-and-so and their descendants. So if you look at Genesis 11, verse 10, example, the beginning of book five, chapter five, not the big number chapter, but the Genesis chapter. These are the generations of Shem. So this is what became of the descendants of Noah's son, Shem. And the first four books, sections of Genesis, starting in chapter two, they're, they're filled with exa- all kinds of examples of God blessing the righteous, people who obey his commands, and God judging the wicked, people who reject his commands. But there's a problem with all that. And it's actually a really big problem. You know what the problem is? Nobody in this story can remain righteous. Notice that? Nobody in the story, even if like Noah, they started, and Noah was a righteous man. Where does he end up? Passed out drunk in his tent. Nobody can remain righteous. All four books begin with man experiencing the blessing of God, and all four books end with man under the judgment of God. It's a cycle over and over and over again. And, and, and you do have these glimpses of hope. So for example, Genesis 4, 26, at that time people began to call upon the name of the Lord. Genesis 6, 8, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Genesis 9, 26, blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem. So you have these glimpses of hope in the first three books, but, but overall, by the time you get to the middle of chapter 11, and that in the Tower of Babel proves that, that reach for the stars is not exactly a wise motto for life in God's world. The trend is not onward and upward in experiencing God's favor and blessing. The trend is spiraling downward under the curse and judgment of God. And book four doesn't end with the slightest glimpse of hope. Folks at Tower of Babel just scattered. Nothing changes in book five. And, and book six, the generations of, of Terah, toward the end of chapter 11, it's, it starts out with what? Death in verse 28. An early death, Haran died in the presence of his father. That, that's not supposed to happen, right? Children dying in the presence of their father. And barrenness, In verse 30, now Sarai was barren, she had no children. So you've got this next book starting off with death, with barrenness, and and all of that is just begging the same question we've been seeing from the very beginning. Can mankind ever get back to life in Eden? To life under the blessing of God? Can we ever get back to that? And if we get there, how can we stay there? Because the moment we seem to get close to that, we just fall right back into this cycle of sin and judgment. That's where Genesis 12, 1 picks up. And and this is arguably one of the most important little sections in the entire book of Genesis, if not the entire Bible, for this reason. The Lord's relationship with this guy named Abram proves something. It shows us something, namely that even in the midst of sin and judgment, God refuses to abandon his plan to lead his people into an experience of his favor and blessing. 
Okay, I'm gonna say that again. Genesis 12, one through three, one of the most important sections in the entire book of Genesis, if not the Bible, because it proves that God is not a God in the face of sin and judgment who abandons his plan to lead his people into an experience of divine favor and blessing. That's the God we serve. But that blessing, friend, is not universal. And it's not automatic. The blessing of God only rests on those who respond to his word of promise with what? Faith. The blessing of God only rests on those who respond to his word of promise with faith, obedient trust. And if, if you want to experience God's blessing, you have to follow him by faith. That's the big idea here. You want to experience God's blessing? Well, it's not automatic. It's not universal. The blessing of God only rests on those who respond to his word of promise with faith, obedient trust. And this story, and in particular the example of Abram, shows us what biblical faith is and does. So I have two points today, and the first is this. What is faith? Faith trusts the promises of God. Trust the promises of God. So look at verse 1, chapter 12, verse 1. We're going to linger in chapter 12 here. Now the Lord said to Abram, We're just gonna stop there. Why? Stop there because we need to stop and realize that that was an extraordinary expression of God's mercy. Abram's family is from where? They're from Ur of the Chaldeans, they're from Haran, both of which are known as centers of worship for the pagan moon god. And Joshua 24 verse 2 explicitly says that Terah, Abram's dad, and Terah's family, that pretty much wraps up Abram, served, quote, other gods. Why is that important? Because it reminds us, friend, that God isn't talking to Abram because Abram earned a word from the Lord. God isn't talking to Abram. The Lord isn't speaking to Abram because he saw my goodness, out of all the peoples of the earth, look at that righteous man. Look how faithful he is to worship. You know what? I think I'm going to reward his good works with a word from me. No. No, not at all. God isn't speaking to Abram because he did something to earn the Lord's blessing. He's worshiping pagan idols when the Lord speaks to him. He doesn't deserve a word from the Lord. And yet, the Lord spoke to him anyway. Why does God do stuff like that? Because he's merciful and gracious. That's why he does that. If the, if the Lord hadn't condescended to speak to Abram, everything and all the background information with all the big names and details that we tend to overlook reminds us that Abram would never have followed the Lord. Abram didn't find his way to God. God intervened in Abram's life and revealed his word to that man. It was a gift. We need to remember that, friends. We need to remember that God must make known to us the path of blessing. We, we don't get to create the path of blessing or find our way to the path of blessing. God has to make it known and experiencing God's blessing starts with listening to what God is saying to us in the pages of his word. You'll never experience God's blessing 
if you're not willing to listen to his word. Just like Abram listened to his word. Why do I say that? Psalm 16, verse 11, you make known to me the path of life. Do you realize that? You can't discover it. You can't stumble upon it. God, almighty God, must make known to you, must reveal to you the path of blessing. No less than he did to Abram. And his word to Abram came in the form of a simple command embedded in a whole series of promises. So we're going to look a little later at Abram's obedience. But right now, I just want us to focus on the nature, chapter 12, verse 1, of what God is telling Abram to do. And in particular, the promises that he makes Abram. So what is he telling Abram to do? The Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house. Now I read that and I think, great, I get to ride JetBlue. Let's go somewhere fun. And then we'll just come back when we get lonely or homesick. Well, because we live in 21st century America, it is very hard for us to understand the significance of what God was calling this man to do. So we need to slow down and think about this, okay? People didn't just jet around the world in those days. Your country, your kindred, your, your father's house were, were all that you knew, all that you had. So, so what was your country? It was your national identity. What, what was your kindred? It was your relational identity. What was your father's house? It was your material identity and security. And, and by the way, if you're thinking, but wait, I thought Terah died in chapter 11, verse 32. If you're curious, go read Acts 7, which makes very clear in verse 2, that Terah was still alive when the Lord spoke to Abram. So chapter 12 is sort of a double click on a middle section of the generations of Terah. So what God's asking him to do is, is significant. These identities were things that defined Abram. Okay, they, they were part of his sense of self, his sense of belonging, his sense of place in the world. They represented all that was comfortable, all that was convenient, all that was secure. They were, they were safe things. They were reliable things. They were, they were trustworthy things. Why? Because they were known things. He knew them. He was familiar with them. But what does God tell him to do? Abram, I want you to leave all of that. Why? Because there's a land that I'm going to show you. Well, if I'm Abram, this is what I'm thinking. You want me to give up what I already have and what I can already see for what I do not have and I have yet to see. For real. <laughs> I mean, Lord, I don't know if I'm unusual, but, but that's not what responsible 75-year-olds typically do. That's what teenagers do. <laughs> that's not what responsible adults, mature, seasoned saints, 75-year-olds do. They make wise decisions. They make calculated decisions. I mean, 
I, I'm not going to go this way as long as this land is just a mystery. How, how about this? How about God, you give me a kind of high level overview, you know, a nice little brochure with maybe some facts and figures, and then I'll make a calculated decision with pros and cons if I like your land or I like my country, kindred, and father's house. I mean, after all, you want me to walk in wisdom, right? So, so why don't you give me the information that I need, that I crave, in order to control, oh, sorry, in order to make a wise decision about my life? Why didn't the Lord do that, folks? Why didn't he do that? Why didn't he show Abram the land up front with some virtual reality goggles? <laughs> Oh, it's simply this. He wanted Abram to trust him, right? He wanted Abram to believe him. He wanted Abram to walk by faith. It was the summons to believe the Lord. Hebrews eleven eight. By faith, Abram obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive an inheritance. And then listen to this. Make a t-shirt with this. And he went out not knowing where he was going, <laughs> I hope you have a category, Christian, in your understanding of what it means to follow God for doing things that look ridiculous in the eyes of the world. Because that is in many cases what it means to walk by faith. If the Lord had shown him the land up front, Abram would have been tempted, listen, to follow the Lord, not because he believed the Lord is good, but because the land looked good. Right? And that would have made God his personal genie, effectively turning the creator into a servant of the creature. I'll follow the Lord because he gives me goodies. We can do that. We can do that. But because God didn't show Abram the land up front, he confronted Abram with a very different sort of choice. It wasn't God's land, look at my PowerPoint, versus your country, kindred father's house. It wasn't a choice between two blessings. You know what it was? It was a choice between two masters. It was a choice between two masters. Abram could stick with his country, his kindred, or his father's house, and make them his God, and trust them to give him the blessed life. Or he could follow the Lord and make the Lord his God and trust the Lord to give him what is good. Now, why did God set it up that way? Okay, God set it up that way because his primary goal, please hear this, wasn't to give Abram a new land. His primary goal was to draw Abram into a new relationship with himself. That was his goal. The Lord wanted his heart. He, he wanted his trust. And friend, that's what Christianity is all about. It's what it's all about. It, it's about a relationship of absolute trust in the Lord. Listen, Christianity is not a lifestyle option. Okay, it's not something that you dabble in to kind of have a well-rounded personality in a 21st century world, okay? Christianity is about placing all your trust and all your confidence on Jesus Christ. Surrendering every last bit of control over the future course of your life into the hands of the one who gave it to you and the one who is sustaining your life right now, whether you are willing to acknowledge it or not. It's going all in. 
in following the Lord. It's trust. If you want a one-word description of what it means to be a Christian, try that. It's trust. It's faith. But notice, please notice, looking at verse 2 here, this is not blind trust. So often faith is used that way. What's faith? Well, it's a leap into the dark when you have absolutely no good reason to do it. No, that's called stupidity. (laughs) For real. Okay, it's not blind faith. God didn't say, Abram, you don't know who I am, what I like, what I'm like, or what I'm about to do, but you better get in line and follow me. No, it was an informed trust, right? Listen, not a trust, a knowledge, in the character of the land, but a trust in the character of the Lord. A character that the Lord revealed to him, a nature, a goodness, a loving kindness, a sovereignty, a a faithfulness that the Lord revealed to him in the form of four promises. What are those promises? Let's go through them quickly. First promise, he promised to make him a great nation. God created Abram and Sarai, no less than every other couple that we've seen in the book of Genesis, to be fruitful and multiply. And thus far, they've been unable to what? Unable to conceive. Well, last time I checked, becoming a great nation required, I don't know, opening bid, at least one descendant. (laughs) Right? At least one. So God is what? He's effectively promising them biological children. He's saying to Abram and Sarai, I am going to so work and move in your physical bodies that you will be enabled by me, empowered by me, to fulfill your mission on the earth. That's what he's promising. Make you a great nation. Second, he promised to bless him. He promised to bless him. Notice that in verse two. Make you a great nation and I will bless you. Now now we tend to think what? Because we're good Americans, we immediately think of that in purely material terms. Cool, God's gonna give him a nice house, a reliable job, a comfortable retirement, and a healthy body. Sign me up. Well, let's think carefully. Can the blessing of God include material things? Absolutely, absolutely. Okay, we're not, we're not Gnostics who say, well, 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 material world, physical things, rubbish. It's about the spirit. No, God created all of it and he said it's all what? Very good. But yet, the Bible reminds us that the blessings of God are far bigger and more glorious than material things. So for Abram to live under the blessing of God I will bless you, was what? What's the essence of that? Abram, you're gonna live under the smile of my favor. You're gonna live in the joy of of relationship with me, knowing that my face is shining upon you, that I'm for you, buddy, I'm not against you, that, that I'm working all things together for good in your life. It was a promise of bringing Abram back to nothing less than, than life in the Garden of Eden. I'll bless you. Third, he promised to make his name great. Make his name great. You hear that and you get a little uncomfortable. Like, ooh, isn't God's name great? What's, like, are you worshiping Abram? That's a little weird. Well, in the Old Testament, your name represented your identity. Okay? So by promising to make his name great, the Lord essentially promised Abram, I'm going to give you a glorious identity. I'm going to give you an answer to the who am I question that will cause you to be set apart from everyone around you. Now think about it. 
What, what did the builders of the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11 verse 4 try to do? What was driving them? Make our name what? Great. Make our name great. Well, what does God say to Abram? Follow me and I will make your name great. You want a glorious identity, Abram? Well, the first thing you need to do is stop trying to create it for yourself. And the second thing you need to do is allow me to give it to you. He promised to make his name great. Fourth, he promised to vindicate him. To vindicate him. If someone blesses you, Abram, I'll bless them. If someone curses you, Abram, I'll curse them. What's the essence of that? God is essentially promising, Abram, listen, I'm going to hold the entire world accountable for the way they treat you. I assure you, Abram, that if you're willing to entrust yourself to me, everyone who treats you rightly will be rewarded by me, and everyone who tries to hurt you and treat you wrongly will be punished by me. What, what's that? It's vindication, protection from the Lord. And notice, we need to read carefully here, notice that those who bless you is plural, more than one, and him who dishonors you is what? Singular. It's just one more little clue in God's word that under God's sovereign mercy, ultimately, it's blessing that will prevail. It's blessing that's abundant. God's saying to Abram, I've got your back, buddy. You don't have to take your life in your own hands. I will vindicate you. Now, those are the promises. Now, let's look back at verse two, the very end. What is the result What's the assured result of all that God promised to do in his life? Verse two, and I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you. I'll make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I look down at verse three. God repeats himself here. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. I will make you a blessing, Allah, in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. There are two things we need to notice about that, okay? First, it's ultimately this blessing, something that God brings to pass, not Abram. Okay, what do we mean by that? God didn't tell Abram to make himself a blessing, right? What did, what did God say? He promised to make him a blessing. Those are not the same thing, church. Okay, why is that important? It's important because we tend to think that the Christian life works like this, okay? God gives you a bunch of cool goodies called gifts, abilities, opportunities, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And now it is up to you, best of luck, to make something of yourself. To prove to God and all the heavenly angels watching you with great anticipation that God didn't make a mistake in entrusting you with all those goodies. So get busy. Work hard. You're slacking off. Be a blessing while you're at it. We, we think like that. We, we can labor. Some of us are tempted in the opposite direction with laziness. I'm not talking to you right now. But some of us are tempted to labor under this yoke of, I hope I'm making of my life what I'm supposed to. And that haunts you. And every morning you wake up and every night you lie down you think, I wonder if I did it today. Maybe I got close. Maybe one day I'll get there. I never feel like I'm there. Well, friend, if that's you, remember this. You need to be diligent to discover and pursue 
all the good works that God has prepared for you. But let's do them with the joy and absence of striving that comes from knowing God is at work in us both to will and to work according to his pleasure, that the spiritual good God enables you to do to the people around you is ultimately the fruit of God's work in you, not your work for them, okay? And that means that confidence that our life won't be wasted doesn't ultimately come from what we make of ourselves, but from what a faithful God is doing in us and through us. Those are not the same thing. The one is a yoke, the other is, is freedom. That's the first thing we gotta see. It wasn't be a blessing, it was Abram, I will make you a blessing. Here's the second thing. The promise that in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed isn't first and foremost, please hear this, about what God was doing through Abram or what God wants to do through you and me. You know often we read the Bible and we're just kind of like, where's me? Where am I? I wanna know where I am. Am I in that verse? Well, you know what? We are, but ultimately we're not. Why do I say that? Why do I say that? Because the promise that in you, that in you is first and foremost about what God has done and is doing through Jesus. Why do I say that? Well, notice in verse three, 12 verse three, that the in you is expanded. Look at verse seven to Abram's offspring. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your offspring, I will give this land. And the word offspring is singular for a reason. For a reason, okay? Genesis uses a singular word offspring because in Galatians 3.16, we read this. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings. Some of you are thinking, good night. I just graduated. Are we back in English class? Follow, this is really important. Not, and so it doesn't say unto offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is what? Who's Christ. Who's Christ. Now think about this, okay? The most, the most important offspring of Abram, the, the one in whom all the families of the earth will be blessed, is Jesus, the eternal son of God. Born as a man into the line of Abram. Jesus is the one in whom God fulfills all the blessings that he promised to Abram and in whom all the blessings that God gave to Abram now overflow to you and me. So what's Jesus do? Examples. Jesus makes us into a holy nation. Right? Revelation 1 verse 5. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Jesus does that. Jesus secures the eternal blessing and favor of God in our lives. Ephesians 1.3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with what? Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Okay, Jesus gives us a new name and identity as the children of God. 1 John 3.1, see what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God and so we are. And Jesus protects us and guarantees our vindication on the final day. Those who bless the Son of God will be eternally blessed. Those who dishonor the Son of God will be eternally judged. John 3.35, the Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. 
All those promises are fulfilled in Jesus. So, so what's the bottom line? Okay, what did Abram have to do in order to experience God's blessing? He had to believe God's word by trusting God's promises. Believe his word by trusting his promises. Friends, do you realize that the faith that God calls you and me to today is absolutely no different? How has God spoken to us today? He's spoken decisively to us through the word of his son and the gospel he proclaimed. If you want to experience God's blessing, you have to believe Jesus. You have to believe the gospel. And listen, trusting Jesus necessarily requires that you stop trusting, no less than Abram had to, the comforts, the conveniences, and the securities of this world to give you a life of blessing. You don't get to add Jesus as some sort of security blanket onto an otherwise materialistic life. You what? We turn away, what does faith do? It turns away, rejects trusting all those things, the things of this world, and it turns toward trusting Jesus to give us the blessings of God. No less than Abram. If you want to experience God's blessings, you have to trust his promises, which means trusting the one in whom they are all fulfilled. Trusting Jesus. As he says himself in Mark 8, 34, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. So what does faith do? Faith trusts the promises of God. Okay, that's point one. Point two is much shorter than that. So have no fear. But there's something else faith does. Trust the promises of God. What's, what, what else does faith do? Faith, point two, it obeys the commands of God. There's a connection. Faith trusts the promises of God. It obeys the commands of God, okay? Look at verse four. By the way, this is one of those moments where if you're reading in the original language in Hebrew, the opening of verse four is the exact opposite order of words as the opening of verse one. So verse one, and the Lord said to Abram, go. Verse four, went Abram as said the Lord to him. What's the point? What's the point? Abram did exactly what God told him to do. Exactly. How did he, think of it this way. How did he express his faith in God? Was his faith just something that he kind of kept, you know, private like a good American? And, you know, I don't talk about it much, but, but yeah, I'm a person of faith. No, his faith went public because that's what faith is. It expresses itself by obeying the commands of the Lord. He, he proved that he would believe, he believed that God would do what he said he would do, by obeying the Lord, he proved that. His obedience, think of it this way, his obedience wasn't a separate thing from his faith. It wasn't like Abram had faith and then later on in life, he added to his faith some obedience. Abram trusted Jesus as his savior because all good middle-class Southern boys do that. But you know, over his life, he kind of eventually got around to following Jesus as his Lord. No. No, okay? There's no such thing as genuine faith without obedience. If it's genuine faith, it always manifests itself by obeying God's commands. It's, it's two sides of the same coin. You can't have one without the other, which is why the Apostle Paul 
begins and ends the book of Romans with this wonderful phrase, the obedience of faith. The obedience of faith. It's, it's a connected thing. Guards us from thinking that we can claim to believe God's promises. We can claim to trust Jesus while completely disregarding his commands in some area of our life. That's impossible. That option isn't just wrong. It doesn't exist in God's world. Abram trusted God's promises and he expressed that trust by obeying God's commands. And there are five things about the way he obeyed that I want to very quickly point out to you, okay? So as I work through these, verses four to nine, listen this way, okay? Pay very careful attention. I want you to listen thinking about an area of your life where, if you're honest, it is hard for you to obey the Lord or maybe you struggle to obey the Lord. And don't spend all your time trying to write as fast as you can because some of you are prolific note takers. God bless you. That's okay. Don't stop. But on this point, I just want you to listen. What is it about the way he obeyed, this obedience of faith, that in this hard area of my life where I'm struggling, that I really need to focus on? Okay? So listen. Here we go. Five, five things we learned from Abram's example. All right? First, his obedience was immediate. Look at the gap between verses three and four. Did you notice there's no hemming and hawing? <laughs> okay, the Lord speaks to Abram and immediately Abram obeys the Lord. Friend, listen, don't con yourself into thinking that you're obeying the Lord because you have good intentions to do that. You're not. Okay, there, there's, no, there's no middle ground between obedience and disobedience that consists of, well, one day I'll get around to that. Doesn't exist. At every moment in your life, every area, every situation, one of two things is true. Either you are obeying the Lord or you are not. There's no hem and haw, not so bad, but not so great as it could be option. <laughs> Okay, his obedience was genuine because it was immediate. Second, it was careful. What do I mean by that? I mean that Abram wasn't running around doing what he thought he should do or what other people thought he should do. He did what God told him to do, nothing more and nothing less. Now, there are a lot of areas of life where it's not so easy to figure out what does God want me to do, right? Find out what pleases the Lord. That takes work in a lot of areas, a lot of work. You need God's spirit, God's word, godly counsel. But, but, but you know what you need the most? If you're gonna obey the Lord carefully, you need to think hard, read carefully, and wrestle with what the word of God tells you to do. That's what you need. Obeying God isn't about doing what other Christians think is right or what other Christians say is wrong or what your parents say is right, or what your parents say is wrong. Ultimately, obeying God is about being careful to do what his word tells you to do. That's the bottom line, okay? It was careful. Third, it was wholehearted. It was wholehearted. Notice, Abram didn't hedge his bets. He didn't say this. Well, in case this whole following God thing doesn't work out so great, I'll leave some of my stuff over here in my country, my kindred, my father's house. I, I'll sort of keep my eggs in both baskets. You know, I, I, I'm a good stock guy. I'll, I'll diversify my trust. No, no, okay? That's not trust. That's unbelief. 
Anything but all in with Jesus is unbelief. What did Abram do? He took his wife, he took his nephew, he took all his possessions, notice that, all his possessions, and everybody who was associated with him. He went all in. Friend, Jesus demands all of your heart, not just some of it, all that you are, all that you have. His obedience was wholehearted. Fourth, it was persistent. We'll just do four of these. It was persistent. Notice, what did Abram see in verse five when he finally got to the land that God revealed to him? What did he see? Verse six. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. What is that about? That is not a throwaway line. What is that? Oh man, God clearly made a mistake. This is not going to work. The land's already taken. I guess I'm just going to have to look elsewhere. I mean, mm, maybe God missed the Canaanites. No, no. His faith didn't waver in front of a really formidable obstacle. What did he do when he hit an obstacle? What did he do when he hit an area of life where he was going to have to wait for God to do what only God could do? Oh, I can't believe it. This faith thing is just so ridiculously hard. Well, sort of. What did he do? Verse 7, he built an altar to the Lord. Look at verse 8. He built an altar to the Lord and he called upon the name of the Lord. What's that? That's faith seeing the obstacle and going Godward with it. That's faith seeing the obstacle and saying, Lord, even though there's a really big obstacle called the Canaanites here, I am going to worship you and praise you in advance while I am waiting for you to do what only you can do. Because you said go this way and I believe your word and I'm not going to go any other way just because this got really hard. That glorified the Lord. He was persistent. He was persistent. He was persistent because at this point, and this is a story, God has yet to fulfill any of the promises that he has made And there are really two obstacles. Exhibit A, my wife is barren. Exhibit B, the Canaanites are in the land. And yet, Abram persists in trusting the Lord. Now, undoubtedly, waiting for the Lord, it challenged his faith. Really challenged his faith. Okay, we're going to see this again and again and again. But waiting didn't destroy his faith because he continued to express his trust in the Lord, even in the face of all these obstacles, while he waited for God to do what only God can do. Remember that, friend. Genuine faith doesn't just trust the promises of God. It expresses that trust by obeying the commands of God, no matter how big the obstacles are or how long the wait. Conclude with this. The Lord is eager to bless you. As he blessed Abram. But his blessing is not universal and it's not automatic that the blessing of God only rests on those who respond to his word of promise 
with obedient trust. If you want to experience God's blessing, you have to follow God by faith. You have to trust his promises. You have to obey his commands. And I think, having spent a week in this word, that it's hard to hear all that and not feel really discouraged. Because if we're honest, I'm sure there's a lot of us who are thinking right now, Lord, my trust in you is so weak. It's so weak. There are so many areas in my life where I, I struggle to obey your commands. Is there, is there any real faith in my heart? Friend, because I love you and I want to shepherd you, I want to remind you that in that moment, which by the way is a moment that Christians come back to again and again, (laughs) that there is one thing you must do and one thing you must not do. What is that? The one thing you must not do is try to hide your doubt or unbelief from the Lord or his people. Don't do that. Confess it with a cry for help. Mark 9, 24. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said to Jesus, I believe Help my unbelief. Second, the one thing you must do is remember that the obedience of faith is a work that Jesus starts and Jesus finishes. What what does the Lord say in Hebrews 12 too? Jesus is the what? The starter of our faith who gives us all we need to go out and make it big and bad. No, Jesus is what? He's the founder and the perfecter of our faith. How is he able to do that in your life? He's able to help you because he's the only human being who ever always responded to God's word of promise with obedient trust. Always. And because he always did that, he knows your weaknesses. He knows your temptations and he's ready and able to help you. So let's pray and ask him to do that. Lord Jesus, we really need you to empower us to walk by faith. And I pray, Father, that as we, through song, ask you to do that, that your Holy Spirit would help us to not come face to face with areas where we're struggling where it's hard to trust your promises, where it's, we're just, if we're honest, we're not remotely obeying your commands. Lord, your word has brought us, our face close to seeing those things today. And I pray that instead of walking away and thinking, oh, well, one more area, I'm not what I ought to be. Lord, I pray that we would respond like that dad and Mark. Lord, I believe Would you help my unbelief? And would you give me power to express my faith by obeying? Lord Jesus, do that even as we pray this song to you. In your name, amen.